I'm Jade. And I'm Shauna. And this is Wellness Speaks. A podcast about functional medicine and healthy living. Hey guys, welcome to Wellness Speaks, episode 8. Wellness Speaks about nutrition in ADHD. ADHD is a diagnosis we're all likely familiar with, and it's a disorder that has had a staggering increase in the amount of children diagnosed over the last decade. So as always, we want to express that we are not doctors, and this podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast is meant to diagnose or treat, and we advise that you seek the advice of your practitioner before making any changes to your child's medication or supplement regimen. Absolutely. Okay, so I feel like I have to preface all of this with I am likely going to come off pretty opinionated about ADHD, what it is, what it isn't, all of its components. Um, Part of this is because of the long-term implications of choosing medication for a child that has an ADHD diagnosis. It is not uncommon for a child who receives ADHD meds early in life to later be diagnosed with bipolar disorder when they enter their teen years and then later with schizophrenia when they hit their 20s or 30s. And I very strongly believe that this is a result of a lifetime of medication and unaddressed nutrient deficiencies rather than a mental disease or disorder. So that being said, I will try to stay off my soapbox as much as possible during this episode. So thanks for bearing with me on this, Shauna. <laughs> it's just sure. a, it's a pretty passionate topic for me, um, as is anything that hits close to home. So I have a son with ADHD and we have never medicated, never will. Um, but you know, it's not a mild case of ADHD. Um, and you know, so I can absolutely relate to the struggle that parents deal with when trying to make what, you know, they do or don't know is the right and best decision for their child. So (sighs) anyway, moving right along, it is my personal opinion that ADHD is grossly overdiagnosed. Um, You know, more parents tend to rely on a diagnosis and the resulting prescription from their pediatrician rather than from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So true ADHD has to do with sort of this backwards wiring of the brain. Um, That is a super oversimplified explanation of it. But you can think of this as like um, people who drink coffee or take any sort of stimulant and it calms them down. Or if they take something calming, then it amps them up. So what happens is their brain fires too many excitatory neurons and not enough inhibitory neurons. Exactly. So let's start this conversation off with a few statistics about the diagnosis of ADHD. In 2013, one in eight males, that's 12%, ages 3 to 17, had been diagnosed with ADHD, and boys are three times more likely to be diagnosed than girls. And between 1997 and 2012, there was a 75% increase in the number of children diagnosed with ADHD. That's huge. And there's, you know, a huge discussion over whether this increase is because, is it because pediatricians are diagnosing instead of people going with a clinical diagnosis from a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Is it because ADHD is actually more widespread? Is it because these are not actual cases of ADHD and instead cases of hyperactivity related to something else? But regardless, that's still a huge increase, right? 
Um, Definitely. So among children aged three to four, so these are toddlers, the rate of ADHD diagnosis more than doubled in that same time frame. And this part crazy. is partic- yeah, particularly crazy to me because when we look at the DSM-5, so that's the most recent sort of manual that um, psychiatry looks at for diagnosing symptoms, and you're way more familiar with that than I am, right, Shauna? Is there a better, a better way to explain what the DSM is? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. But yeah, the DSM-5 is what is currently being looked at. Um, so a child must display uh, six or more symptoms for more than six months. And the symptoms cannot be attributed to another diagnosis like bipolar or oppositional defiant disorder or autism or anything else. The symptoms, um, they have to interfere or reduce the quality of social, academic, or occupational functioning. So let's let's just take a look at a few of these qualifying symptoms. And keep in mind here, we're evaluating these for three and four-year-olds. So often fidgets with or taps hands or feet or squirms in their seat, often does not seem to listen when spoken to directly, often has difficulty sustaining attention in tasks or activities. I think this is super open-ended, like we expect entirely too much um, of an attention span out of kids, but yeah. Especially three uh, and four year olds. Yeah. And also (laughs) I noticed, you know, it says often fidgets with like, that's kind of a vague term. I'm I'm not sure how you quantify or qualify often. Um, They are often on the go. They often blurt out answers before a question has been completed. They often have difficulty waiting their turn. I just, what three-year-old <laughs> ever waits their turn? Um, right. And you know, and we're laughing, but like, this is really serious. Yeah, this it's, is the absurdity yeah, of it. Yeah, um, yeah. Often forgetful in daily activities. So basically kids acting, acting like kids, you know, um, I just, I have, and this is just a few of them. This is not a complete list. If it was a much more extensive than than this, I just pulled some of the ones that I thought were particularly, um, kind of like, that's what a kid does. Um, so children below the poverty line are 30% more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than children who live above the poverty line. I think that this statistic says a lot about this continually growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And inevitably, when we're talking about the poverty line, we also end up talking about a racial divide here. Yeah. And so I, I recently read an article in the New York Times that ADHD meds are actually being prescribed at higher rates, even if there is no diagnosis of ADHD, <laughs> to increase performance at school. And this tends to be done at increasingly higher levels in the lower income schools and families. Okay, hold on. I'm sorry. So they're not necessarily prescribing it to help treat what we're going to go ahead and just call a mental disease or disorder. They're only prescribing it to increase performance at schools. Are these or, schools that are rating lower on they like, are, testing yes. scores? Yes, they are scores. Wow. Schools that are rating lower on academic performance and that tends to be um, what they are doing. Wow. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so I have a quote directly from this article that I would like to read. And just to give a brief setup, Dr. Anderson is the doctor being interviewed in regards to this specific subject. And he discusses um, his part in this trend that may or may not be widespread. So, you know, we don't know if this is a widespread trend or if this is just 
you know, occasionally being done by just a few doctors nationwide. You know, I'm not going to make that speculation. We don't know. Um, but but the here's fact the that it's happening at all is pretty crazy. It's scary. Yeah. Um, okay. So quote, this is the quote from the, the New York Times. Although ADHD is the diagnosis Dr. Anderson makes, he calls the disorder made up and an excuse to prescribe the pills to treat what he considers the children's true ill, poor academic performance in inadequate schools. And here is a quote directly from Dr. Anderson. I don't have a whole lot of choice, said Dr. Anderson, a pediatrician for many poor schools in Cherokee County. We've decided as a society that it's too expensive to modify the kid's environment, so we have to modify the kid, end quote. Holy shit. So I'm sorry. So basically this doctor who is wielding the power of prescription, he realizes that what he's not that what he's doing is not the right way to do things, yet he is going ahead and doing it anyway. And I mean, yeah. okay, I know I don't know this doctor, I don't know this guy. Who am I to judge what he's doing? But I'm I'm guessing that maybe like many doctors, he's sort of a victim of the conventional medical system as well, and his hands are sort of tied. Oh yeah, I I'm would, sure. I would speculate that parents are coming to him like not knowing what to do and right. he's he's just giving them this and saying yeah. I mean And you know but... we of course we don't have details of what is happening right. here but right. um it's interesting that that's happening at all and and Medicaid that's almost crazy. always covers that cost which supplements are mm -hmm. not covered right. and that seems a little backwards and, you know, many times, like you just said, parents don't realize there are more natural options and alternatives to these pharmaceuticals. And they're not being told that. Um, so that they have something else that they could they could reach out to and, right. and try. Yeah. And that's really, really sad. And that's, I mean, again, another part that is a huge downfall of our conventional medical system right now and how it fails everybody. Um so interestingly, though, uh, a f this, and I think this is almost just funny, a federal government-sponsored e review of the interventions that are available for ADHD, so this was sponsored, funded by the government, found that interventions using parent behavior training actually had greater evidence of effectiveness than stimulant medication like Ritalin or Adderall. I am shocked that this study was not buried by the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, Me this is this is literally saying parent behavior training, like training parents on how to deal with their child's hyperactivity had greater effectiveness than medication. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty shocked that that wasn't buried as well. Right. Like, <laughs> how did we even find that study? Um, but still, even still, three of the drugs that are used to treat ADHD, these are among the top five. These are ranked by spending. Top five prescribed to children in the United States. So... That's, yeah. I mean, that right there says a lot about, about what's being prescribed to kids here. It so, really does. Um, the peak age for diagnosis of ADHD is between 8 and 10 years old. But remember, we did say earlier, there. I mean, there's a lot of diagnosing done beginning at age 3. That's when a child is actually eligible for evaluation. Uh, ADHD is not an acute diagnosis. It's rather a chronic one, which requires ongoing management for the child to function optimally in both school, social, and home settings. 
And the drugs used to treat ADHD often have uh, unwanted side effects, so just like any prescription pharmaceutical drug you take. So some of the side effects are things like decreased appetite, insomnia or thrashing in the sleep, in your sleep, stomach aches, headaches, anxiety, depression. We talked about it being diagnosed later as bipolar and then schizophrenia. Um, delayed growth, rebound, so irritability when the medication wears off, and tics. So these are like facial tics, things that one might think like um, are related. You know, it's a, it's a neurological effect. Um, so these side effects can often lead to more problems than the ADHD symptoms themselves do. And many parents look for an alternate route to assist their child in learning to manage their ADHD. Yeah, and just to interject here, I believe that every parent has their choice of whether or not to use pharmaceutical prescriptions for their child, of course. However, as I already mentioned, um, many parents just don't know and they're never told that there is another way. So um, there are many underlying reasons for the ADHD that should be considered or at least mentioned before those decisions are made. For instance... Exercise and physical activity in general has been shown hands down to be very beneficial for all kids, but especially for those with ADHD. Mm-hmm. And sadly, many schools have even eliminated physical activity or at least shortened it rather than dramatically, um, when in fact research actually shows that the more physical activity and recess that the children are having throughout the day, the better they perform. Yeah, movement is so important, and I want to circle back to that point a little bit later. Um, In addition to exercise, particularly cross-midline exercises that build balance and coordination, so nutrition can be a safe way to manage many of the symptoms seen in children with ADHD. So even though the brain is less than 5% of the body's actual weight, it uses 20% of the body's energy supply. So this means it needs a constant supply of the beneficial vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and energy sources that we take in. Um, you know, in an ideal world, these would come directly from diet, but we we don't live in an ideal world for one thing. And many of us do not eat a well-rounded diet. And even if we did... The depleted state of the soil used to grow our food simply does not supply the nutrition that our bodies and our brains need. So supplements can be extremely useful. Yeah, and nutrient depletion is often overlooked um, side effect of many medications. Mm-hmm. And ADHD meds are certainly not excluded from inducing nutrient depletion. So some of the common nutrients that are depleted from medications such as Ritalin and Adderall are uh, vitamin B1, for instance, and that the symptoms related to a depletion of vitamin B1 are depression, weight loss, memory loss, fatigue, and heart palpitations. Um, B12 and some symptoms related to uh, that nutrient being depleted are loss of appetite, depression, confusion, and neuropathy. Vitamin C can also be depleted from these medications and some symptoms related to a vitamin C deficiency or depletion are poor appetite, depressed immune system, and anemia. Potassium is another one that can often be depleted and it can cause an irregular heartbeat and confusion and irritability. Uh, Carnitine 
can also be depleted and it can cause abnormal liver function, muscle weakness, and reduced energy, and calcium as well. And that can cause a high blood pressure, heart palpitations, weakened bones, and back and leg pains. Wow. Yeah. So um, research has shown that calcium-magnesium ratio significantly was lower after three weeks of treatment with Ritalin and Adderall. And to quote from the research article, the decrease in the ratio may be relevant to side effects and treatment resistance associated with stimulant use. Um, Also found in research is the Ritalin and Adderall and medications similar significantly depletes the dopamine and causes cell death in the olfactory bulb. So the olfactory bulb is part of the limbic system and it is involved in motivation, emotions, and memory. So this may be related to the depressive symptoms that are associated with amphetamine withdrawal. Yikes. Yeah. So I mentioned magnesium and and calcium ratio being significant lower after three weeks of treatment um, with the Adderall. It is also important to note that magnesium deficiency itself has been seen in 91% of children with ADHD in magnesium Deficiency in children is characterized by excessive fidgeting, anxiety, restlessness, psychomotor instability, and learning difficulties. See, and I think this raises the point of the chicken or the egg. So, like, do children with ADHD have magnesium deficiency, or is magnesium deficiency presenting symptoms that we are calling ADHD? Mm, And And I think this relates to a lot of the nutrient depletion um, that we're going to talk about. So this can apply to adults as well. Like if you think about restless leg syndrome, the very first thing that even many conventional doctors are going to recommend for this element is going to be magnesium. Um, so magnesium is actually a macro mineral. This is, this means that it's needed in large quantities. So, uh, calcium, sodium, and potassium are also considered to be macro minerals. It's also an essential mineral, so this is something that we have to consume. The body can't produce it. Um, The magnesium regulates over 300 biochemical reactions in the body. So we obviously are not going to go over every single one of these today, but to touch briefly on a few, magnesium regulates and maintains enzyme activity, and this enables thousands of different biochemical processes to sort of go in your body. Um, it regulates and maintains energy production and ATP. So ATP is basically the energy storage unit of the cells in your body. Magnesium. Oh, sorry. What were you going to say? Oh, I was just, I was just going to say, I mean, that in itself says a lot about magnesium and just the importance of it in our body. It's, it's incredible. It's really needed. And so if, if 91% of these children with ADHD is, um, you know, showing signs of deficiency of magnesium, then it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. So, uh, magnesium is also needed in DNA and RNA, uh, which is the body's internal instructions for building proteins and new cells. Uh, This one is incredibly far-reaching as it can dictate whether certain genes are turned on or off and how they are expressed. Um, And it's also needed for mineral balance overall, which is necessary to maintain the life of the body's cells. So this means it regulates our electrolytes and keeps them in homeostasis. 
this influence the conduction of nerve impulses, muscle contraction, and even heart rhythms. So magne magnesium supplements can be um, particularly helpful in children with ADHD that are excitable and easily stressed or those that are worriers. So these symptoms of ADHD can be directly related to both quality and quantity of sleep. And many children with ADHD may sleep 9 to 12 hours per night, but the quality of sleep may be very poor, never really allowing the child to enter their full sleep cycles. So then their circadian rhythm is disrupted, leading to agitation. Yeah, so magnesium allows for more restful sleep by causing relaxation of the skeletal muscles. It also regulates cortisol, um, which we know is related to melatonin. Uh, it supports the thyroid, which is responsible for a variety of hormonal pathways, and it activates vitamin D. Um, so many children with ADHD also suffer from constipation, and magnesium brings water into the bowels, so this allows for smoother bowel movements as well. The great thing about magnesium is you can take it internally via a supplement. I like a magnesium malate. I prefer this over a citrate. Citrate is not as effective at raising serum levels. Um, but you can also apply magnesium topically. So there are lots of lotions and sprays available for this. And research has actually shown that the transdermal route is more effective at raising your serum levels more quickly than taking an internal supplement is. And hey, doesn't Prairie Bloom's Body Butter contain magnesium? It does. I started incorporating it into the body butter because magnesium deficiency is such a common issue I see in so many of my clients. Um, and many of them were just not super excited about adding yet one more supplement to their regimen. The majority of my clients are female and, you know, most women are using lotion or body butter anyway. So it kind of just was a no brainer. Yeah, I need <laughs> I need to pick that up and try some of that. <laughs> I will because send you one. I use the um, I use transdermal magnesium and I love it. So yeah. I definitely would love to try yours out. Yeah, for sure. I really um, I that's what I use as well. And it's one of those like if you're having a muscle cramp or like a Charlie horse, you can put it on and it relieves it instantly. Perfect. Because it goes awesome. right right into that you know that acute sort of need. Awesome. Um, so. Vitamin D. Um, as we kind of already mentioned, ADHD is an inflammatory condition, so it's been shown that vitamin D aids in activating the anti-inflammatory pathways within your body. It also, in <laughs> it also inhibits pro-inflammatory cells. So raising your vitamin D3 to a serum level of 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter is ideal in most inflammatory conditions. Reaching and then maintaining this level is pretty easy to do with time spent outside in the sun as well as a daily vitamin D3 supplement. And we always recommend that you get your serum levels tested before you supplement with high-dose vitamin D so that you're able to appropriately and safely raise them to an optimal level. You also want to make sure you're taking a vitamin K2 supplement along with any high-dose vitamin D. Yes, for sure. And vitamin D levels are often significantly lower in children with ADHD and has been proven to play a role in behavioral disorders as well as other conditions. So vitamin D has many vital roles in our body, including enhancing intestinal absorption of other critical nutrients such as calcium, magnesium, iron, phosphate, and zinc. 
And vitamin D is also very involved with immune function and regulating the inflammatory response in the body, as you already mentioned. Um, So reports and research show that there appears to be better cognition, focus, and eye contact in ADHD as vitamin D levels are normalized. Yeah. I found that really interesting. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really important to have those levels tested and just kind of know where mm-hmm. you fall, where your child where you're falls. Starting. And yeah. I think, you know, it's really interesting. Like you, it, you were talking about all how vitamin D enhances the intestinal absorption of all of these other nutrients. And so, yeah, you know, that's the thing I kind of think sometimes why, um, like our conventional medical system is it's, it's a lot more complicated. We're like, well, maybe it's a magnesium deficiency, but are you magnesium deficient because you're vitamin D deficient? And so you're not able to absorb enough magnesium and that's what's causing the problem. So, you know, there's all these different things that play off of each other and it's never just one singular issue that needs to be resolved. And so it's like I said earlier, I, I, I sometimes almost sympathize with these doctors that are stuck in a conventional system that does not really even allow them to treat the patient that perhaps maybe they they want to treat differently but they they don't have an option yeah yeah all right so another nutrient that has been shown to be of significance in adhd and other behavioral disorders as well is iron Iron deficiency can interfere with the memory and concentration uh, behavior and both physical and mental performance. So iron deficiency is actually more widespread than a lot of people think. Um, You know, we don't think of that as being like a first world problem, but it's it's actually pretty common. Uh, But cooking with cast iron and using a lucky iron fish are great ways to add iron to the diet without risking the constipation issues that can kind of happen if you over supplement. Um, if you have not heard of the lucky iron fish, this thing is so cool. It's literally this like tiny iron fish, uh, and you pop it into like your soups or your stews, your crock pot. You can, if you cook with an instant pot, I got one of those for Christmas and I've made, I'm not kidding. I've made dinner in it every single night since Christmas, (laughs) um, but you can put it in there while, while they cook. So what's cool about this company is that for every fish ordered, the company sends one to a family in need in countries like Cambodia, the iron deficiency rate there is almost 50% of the population. So kind of kind of a cool cool company to support yeah yeah Um, i'm not even familiar with that so awesome it's really cool uh but making sure your child is consuming enough b12 in order to be able to absorb the iron that they're taking in is also super essential um and so this kind of brings us around to b vitamins and we could probably do an entire episode on b vitamins and um oh yeah the importance (laughs) i mean what you spoke to earlier about um the nutrient depletions of B vitamins by things like Ritalin and Adderall. And that's a super common one. I mean, birth control depletes the shit out of your B vitamins. A lot of medications do. Almost all medications have a play in that for sure. And considering how essential all of your B vitamins are, that's kind of a big deal. Um, So it's super important that you're taking not only the correct amount, but the correct form So we'll try to keep this as straight to the point as possible for the time being. Um, So B vitamins are essential cofactors in the production of your neurotransmitters. So these are things like serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. 
And a lack of these neurotransmitters can equate to depression, anxiety, restless sleep, and just general agitation. So B vitamins come in various forms as supplements. And what's important to know is that the active form that's used in the body is the methylated form. So this is particularly regarding B12 and folate. So if a non-methylated variation is taken in, so non-methylated would be something if you look at the label and it says cyanocobalamin or folic acid or even just folate on its own, um, the body must convert this or methylate it prior to being able to use it in a huge number of pathways. Many of these involve detoxification. Um, MTHFR mutations lead to an inability to properly methylate B vitamins. So this can lead to a buildup of homocysteine, which can lead to chronic inflammation. So again, this methylation cycle and the processes involved will be better explained in another episode, um, probably the one about MTHFR mutations. But we do know from some studies that there's likely a relationship between MTHFR polymorphisms, um, particularly the A198C variation, and ADHD. So when you are supplementing with B vitamins, it's important to consider using only methylated forms, uh, especially if you're not going to have your child tested for an MTHFR mutation. So if you don't want to have the blood draw and have them tested, you can just go ahead and supplement with a methylated form. It doesn't hurt to take a methylated form whether you have the mutation or not. It's also generally recommended to avoid processed foods that contain folic acid, and I recommend this regardless of MTHFR status. So even if you do not have a mutation, I don't think that you should be consuming foods containing that are fortified with folic acid. Yeah, and there's a lot of information out there about that too that mm-hmm. we can maybe get into another time. It's really, really interesting stuff. I've been reading about some of that lately. Yeah. So, and also just to reference the importance of B vitamins in relation to ADHD, um, a double blind crossover study published in the Biological Psychiatry found that vitamin B6 was more effective than Ritalin in a group of hyperactive children. Wow. Yeah, so that's pretty powerful that's information. That's powerful information, yeah. All right, so let's move on to omega-3 fatty acids. Mm-hmm. And omega-3 fatty acids are an essential fatty acid that must be gotten through our diet. Um, low levels of omega-3 fatty acids have been linked to ADHD and behavioral problems in both children and adults. And supplementing with a fish oil can raise the levels of EPA and DHA and decrease anxiety and depression, impulsivity, and even aggression. Yeah, so a lot of times um, people will recommend things that contain alpha-linoleic acids. So these are things like flax seeds, walnuts, and leafy greens. So... um, Alpha-linoleic acid is converted to EPA and DHA in the body, but the body only converts about 5 to 10% of these linoleic acids um, into the useful forms of EPA and DHA. So eating flax seeds, walnuts, leafy greens is um, great, but probably not going to get you to a level of therapeutic um, dosing for EPA and DHA. So eating things like wild-caught sardines, salmon or mackerel um, about twice weekly, or taking a supplement daily are really the best ways to get to those adequate levels of omega-3 fatty acids. 
Yeah. Um, all right. So sugar is one that has to be talked about. <laughs> um, I can personally attest that sugar causes an immediate behavioral reaction in my child. Absolutely. But my question is, does that mean that sugar induces ADHD? <laughs> Well, the jury is still out on that one. <laughs> right. So, um, sugar has been shown in multiple studies uh, over and over to not be related to chronic hyperactivity. But the key here is chronic, right? right? So, eating simple sugars does, cla- does cause blood sugar swings. And this can impair your mental and your emotional stability. We have all seen the kid who is walking around perfectly normal, eats a cupcake at a birthday party and goes ape, right? We've all witnessed this. So yes. if you consider that perhaps your child is constantly spiking their blood sugar due to their dietary intake, it is not surprising that perhaps they have been given a diagnosis of ADHD when in fact... It may just be a child that is unable to control their mood swings due to those blood sugar spikes. Yeah. Um, And also a 2011 study published in the postgraduate medicine found correlations between excessive sugar intake and behaviors associated with ADHD. So the reason may be related to a disruption of chemicals in the brain affecting the reward related areas of the brain. Um, Another study to point out is <laughs> was in the Journal of Pediatrics in 1995 reported that children who ate sugar had an increase in adrenaline, ad- adrenaline levels that caused difficulty concentrating, irritability, and anxiety. So, um, you know, that kind of just goes back to what you're saying. Like, you know, is it causing ADHD or is it causing these other biochemical reactions in the body that just need to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, yesterday was my daughter's third birthday and, um, I ate like three of these miniature cupcakes and I did not feel good at all, but you know, I'm an adult and I can keep my mood swings in check for the most part also because I knew I had just eaten a bunch of sugar and that's probably why I felt like I wanted to scream at everybody. But you you can't expect a child to be able to control that and relate to that. So yeah. I think, you know, that has something to do with it. Like the sugar, the sugar consumption, that's another episode. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. It's too much. And in addition, sugary processed foods often contain artificial colors and flavors and other preservatives as well. So Yeah. And this is perhaps my biggest recommendation when I have a, a parent-child duo client come in um, for the child's ADHD. And I can tell you from personal experience, and I have spoken to multiple parents that had the same experience as me, this was a game changer with my kiddo. I mean, like night and day. So we never ate very much um, food dye, but, you know, it would happen at a birthday party or Halloween or parties at school, whatever. And he was getting migraines. And the hyperactivity was no longer just hyperactivity. It was, I mean, like, just, it was crazy. Night terrors. It was beyond ADHD. Um, So when we completely eliminated those, it was, it was crazy. It was like we had a whole new kid. Um, 
So artificial food color is significantly worse than hyperactivity for many people, not just kids. And the CSPI, this is the Center for Science and the Public Interest, has actually asked the FDA to ban the use of dyes linked to hyperactivity. So this includes blues 1 and 2, green 3, orange 8, reds 3 and 40. I think red dye number 40 is probably the one that we hear the most about. And yellows 5 and 6. So in studies involving over 1,800 children that had been given ADHD diagnoses, significant, and that's statistically significant since we're talking about a peer-reviewed study here, Um, improvement in hyperactivity was shown when the following things were removed from their diet. So benzoate preservatives, so these are things like BHA, BHT, and TBHQ. These are all known carcinogens. Um, And they're found in many, many cereals. mm -hmm, Lots of cereals. Just in case you're wondering what these are found in, like almost all processed foods, but especially cereals. And a lot of times, even if they're not in the food itself, the bag that the cereal or like crackers comes in is sprayed with these. They help preserve the crispness of these foods. Yeah. Um, So artificial colors were also removed. So these were petroleum-based D&C colors and caramel coloring as well. So a lot of people don't think about caramel coloring when we think about food dye, but that's like what makes your Coke brown, right? Um, And then also artificial flavors and artificial sweeteners were removed in the diets of these children. So that's pretty significant. I mean, 1,800 kids is a lot in that that study. Very significant, yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, whether it's a child that's having an allergic reaction to the dyes and preservatives or whether it's the ingredients themselves actually triggering different processes in the brain that lead to ADHD type behavior, or maybe it's children with ADHD are particularly sensitive to these ingredients. We have yet to really find out which one of these it is, if it's all of these, if it's just a couple of these. But, you know, considering these ingredients are completely unnecessary and clearly um, contain a potential for harm, I, I have a really, really difficult time understanding why, as the parent of an ADHD child, you wouldn't just go ahead and eliminate them and see what happens. Um, you know, just take them out. (laughs) It's worth a try for sure. Um, and you know, they've been linked to other, other problems as well, but for sure, just, yeah. So, um, so research has also found that a significant number of children are affected by amounts of food dye of over 35 milligrams a day. So just to give you an idea of what that is, um, one bowl of brightly colored cereal, so that could be like Fruity Pebbles or Fruit mm-hmm. Loops. Um, and most candies typically weigh exceed the 35 milligram threshold. So I so was that's really just one bowl. I was really surprised by that because when I first read that, I thought 35 milligrams seems like kind of a lot. Yeah, but when I was not looking, a lot. Oh, when you're looking just at one, one bowl. bowl. Yeah, bowl. yeah. So fruit and vegetable food colorings are actually a much safer option when serving um, children, Mm -hmm. you know, certain gummies and other candy snacks uh, for those occasional treats that like if at a child's birthday party or school party, just so they don't feel left out. Yeah. And they actually make, um, you can buy like food dye to make, to color your own frosting or whatever. 
just like you can buy food dye that's the the dnc colors you can buy fruit and vegetable food dye it's not like you have to go make it yourself from spinach right (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah so eliminating food dye is actually a lot easier than you'd think there i mean you know there are times when i've been unprepared and yes my child had to go without but you know even at their young ages they both understand why these things are bad and how these things affect their health like how I was talking about my son was having migraines and we had been off of food dye for a really long time. And then, um, not this past Halloween, but a year ago, he (laughs) is so sneaky. He put some of those little tiny Halloween sized uh, (laughs) starbursts. He like hid them in his costume. (laughs) And like two days after Halloween, he started having migraines and he started having Mm. night terrors. And I was like, what are you eating? Where are you getting it? And I was cleaning his room out one day and I pulled his dresser back to sweep behind it. And I shit you not, <laughs> there were probably 10 or 15 starburst wrappers back there. And so I immediately knew what was going on. And so I, sneaky. yeah, so sneaky. So I, t- I, I hung on to them. And when he came home from school and, you know, I wasn't mad because he's a kid, like, what, what are you going to do? But um, we had a conversation and it was really, really good because, you know, he was able to actually relate what it had done to his body. And when I Mm -hmm. pointed out the correlation, he really got it and the light bulb really went on. Yeah, they will if you explain it to him. Yeah. And he now, you know, when there's a party at school or something like that, he's like, oh, no, I I don't even want that because I know what will happen. So, you know, if you, if you explain why it gives your child the opportunity of empowerment and knowledge and being able to take control of their own health at an early age, which is so vital, so vital. Yeah, I agree. Um, so MSG is another one that, um, is added to many, many foods, especially fast foods and restaurants, um, mm-hmm. but also in just processed foods that you'll buy at the store. And this is monosodium glutamate, and it is a flavor enhancer, uh, and it can cause mood and behavior changes, including headaches and mm-hmm. hyperactivity. So um, like aspartame, which aspartame is a sugar alternative, uh, it is a known excitotoxin, which means that it can cause severe damage to the cells throughout the body. Um, MSG can be hidden in labels under other names as well, so it is hard to identify always, but it can Mm -hmm. also um, be named under like hydrolyzed or autolyzed natural flavors. Yeah. Um, natural so flavors that are not yes. so natural. <laughs> right. Um, so most people likely recognize MSG as being highly correlated to migraines and for good reason. It's a huge trigger for a lot of people, but I think that what they don't realize is that it, uh, it affects many chemical pathways in your body. Yeah. So removing the MSG and the food colors and other additives that we talked about have been shown to improve behaviors such as hyperactivity and sleep disorders and um, irritability, as well as improving concentration. Um, Artificial sweeteners, which I briefly mentioned aspartame, uh, Mm -hmm. they are another additive that can be very problematic. So many times people try to buy items that are labeled sugar-free, but most of the time those 
just have something much worse added in its place. (laughs) (laughs) So for instance, um, it is estimated that up to 40% of children in America consume aspartame. I live under a rock. Shauna, I swear, because I'm like, people still eat aspartame? <laughs> what? Yes, they do. That's a so thing much. still? Yes. <laughs> and so Dr. Blaylock, who is a neurosurgeon, um, and he writes in his book that excitotoxins, the taste that kills, that aspartame can lower the seizure threshold and deplete serotonin levels. Wow. So... Low serotonin can actually trigger bipolar and anxiety and depression and mood swings. So it's kind of a thing that you really want to stay away from. Yeah. Hmm. Mood swings. So mood swings, maybe being falsely diagnosed as ADHD, maybe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So like I mentioned, it is definitely possible for a child to have behavioral issues because they have like this allergy or sensitivity to a food ingredient like the food dye or MSG or aspartame. But it's also totally possible that an actual food allergy or sensitivity is causing the behavior as well. Um, An estimated 10% of children have allergies or sensitivities to food. So it's pretty high. Uh, continually consuming a food that the body is sensitive to will create inflammation. We addressed how this occurs in our leaky gut um, duo podcast, so you might want to check that out if you want to learn more about that. And that was episode two. Mm-hmm. Two and three, right? Two and three. Yeah. Yes, two and three. The most common sensitivities to the in most people um, are wheat, corn, soy, dairy, eggs, tree nuts, shellfish, citrus, and peanuts. But this is by no means a complete list. So an IgE allergy test can find a histamine-based allergic reaction, but not a neutrophilic or IgG-mediated reaction. So neutrophilic and IgG-mediated reactions are more likely to cause these sort of long-term effects associated with ADHD. So these are... um, These are reactions that occur anywhere from an hour to three days after consuming the food. Um, So these can be tested with food sensitivity tests such as the ALCAT or the MRT. Um, They can also be found by keeping a correlated food and symptom diary, which is obviously a lot more work, but is a lot more foolproof than the ALCAT or the MRT. Yeah. there's there's some ups and downs with both the ALCAT and the MRT, and we can talk about that at a later date. But um, so eliminating foods that cause an increase in symptoms can often alleviate depression, hyperactivity, lack of concentration, and aggression in children with ADHD. Yeah, and some of the common symptoms seen with the effects of food sensitivities in children are inconsistent performance. He or she may know the material one day, but not remember it the next day, poor memory. They may struggle with focusing and attention. They may have sensory processing problems. So things such as noises and clothing tags, food textures and transitions or change may bother them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Irritability, hyperactivity and frequent meltdowns. So additionally, um, They may also have frequent infections and constant seasonal type allergies or digestive issues. Yeah. And so a lot of what we've spoken about so far addresses inflammation in the body and pesticides are no different. So 
Well, there's been very little evidence to show that organically grown produce actually contains higher levels of vitamins and minerals than conventionally grown. Um, pesticides and agrochemical residues are in, incredibly pro-inflammatory. And so when these are consumed, they activate inflammatory pathways in your body. So children who eat an organic diet, diet have lower levels of these toxins than do children who eat um, conventionally grown produce. And I, I totally get that eating 100% organic is not always a financially feasible option, but shopping for produce, according to the Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 lists, um, we can put links to that in the show notes so that they're easy to find, but this can drastically reduce the amount of pesticides consumed. So the Dirty Dozen every year comes, the EWG comes out with this, and it's the top 12 most heavily pesticide-laden foods. So these are the ones that if you're going to only buy 12 produce items organically, the ones that are on the Dirty Dozen list are the ones that you want to buy organic. The Clean yes, 15, sure. yeah, the Clean 15 is the the list of the least chemically laden or least pesticide laden um, produce products every year. So those are the ones that if you're not going to buy something organic, like those would be the ones that are a little bit safer to buy conventionally. Um, So several studies have also shown that eating just an 80% organic diet actually decreased the amount of pesticide residue found in urine by 90% after only a week. That's pretty huge. I mean, that is so very huge. Yeah, just an 80% organic diet to decrease yeah. it that much. Yeah. That should really be studied and looked at more closely because it can really have devastating effects. Mm-hmm. I, I think we're starting to find that out. So yeah. let's take a look at some other helpful herbs and supplements. Um, caffeine, for instance, is a natural stimulant that can help alleviate symptoms of ADHD. But it is also an addictive drug and should be used with caution. Uh, A small cup of green tea in the morning may be helpful for children with ADHD who have trouble controlling impulses while at school. So the green tea contains theanine, which can be calming, and supplement combinations such as Sintra FX or Relax Max. Um, They contain magnesium and Myo inositol, taurine, GABA, and L-theanine, which have been shown to alleviate symptoms such as restlessness, hyperactivity, lack of impulse control, anxiety, depression, and, and aggression. So this particular combination of supplements helps to reduce the amount of the excitatory neurons being produced and increase the amount of the inhibitory neurons bringing the ADHD brain back into a more balanced state. So in addition to nutrition and exercise, um, other things such as behavioral therapy, mindful meditation, chiropractic work, massage, acupuncture, and spending lots of time outdoors can also help relieve symptoms of ADHD. Absolutely. Um, so we also used the, the relax max or the Centra effects. It's the same thing, but, um, we used that for hmm, probably about a year and a half and it helped a lot with, um, sleeping patterns. I never realized that my child was not getting good quality sleep until our practitioner, um, brought it to my attention 
because I was like, yeah, he sleeps almost 12 hours a night. But then when I thought, oh, he's, he's thrashing all through the night, it made sense. Um, because, you know, I wake up in the morning from not being able to sleep all night and I'm tired. But that, that sort of backwards wiring in the ADHD brain, they wake up in the morning from not having slept all night and they are wired. Wired. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So one last thing that I really want to address, and I think that perhaps this is maybe more important even than the nutrient depletions and the supplementation that we talked about, because I firmly believe that we as a society really need to sit back and reevaluate the expectations that we have placed on our children. So as it has become financially necessary to survive in our society, both parents having to work outside of the home, the school day has continually become increasingly longer because that is where our children go where, but while both parents are at work. And at the same time, as children are spending longer hours in the classroom, money for education has continued to decline. So yeah. children have begun to be required to sit in a room virtually all day and to behave as we as adults want them to, to make our lives easier, right? So yeah. kids are supposed to play, and kids are supposed to run, and kids are supposed to jump and be loud. It's what they do, and it's what they're supposed to do the majority of the time. So this kind of circles back to those DSM-5 requirements um, for being diagnosed with ADHD, and all of these requirements seem to me to be normal childhood behaviors. So I live in Oklahoma, and there is a town here called Chattanooga that was part of a pilot study by Link. That's L-I-I-N-K. There was also an elementary school in Fort Worth, Texas that was included in the study. Um, I think there were 10 schools in all. But what they do is rather than the typical one 20-minute recess that most elementary students get each day, the kids actually get four 15-minute breaks. So they get two in the morning and two in the afternoon. And instances of hyperactivity in the classroom in these schools has dramatically decreased. And the teachers report actually getting more done during the day, like more schoolwork being completed during the day than they were getting completed before, even though they are having to take more breaks and they're spending three times as long outside than they were before. So yeah, the kids, it really makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely does because the kids are more attentive and they're better able to concentrate while they're working in the classroom. Absolutely. Um, you know, I've I've referenced it before and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but the book ADHD Alternatives by Aviva Ram is a really really good starting point for parents looking to understand this aspect. Um and maybe teachers too, you know, when I talked earlier about how that study that we were surprised was still able to be found that showed that parent behavior change um, was more effective. You know, that's what this ADHD alternatives book really addresses for more than half of the book. It really addresses, look, parents, you need to change your expectations because what we're expecting of our kids is pretty ridiculous. Um, so clearly addressing ADHD is multifactorial, lots of different environmental factors to be addressed, but each of them is, is extremely important. And just like most things, if tackling everything at once is too much, then pick one aspect and work yeah. on that. And, you know, I'm willing to bet that you will see improvement, which will make it easier to start addressing 
another aspect and tackling them one at a time. Yeah, and that that goes for almost any aspect or anything you're trying to tackle. Um, Absolutely, definitely, because it can get overwhelming. And and I'm sure all of this information seems pretty overwhelming. But what we really want to get across is how significantly important these nutrients are to the body too, and how this can affect literally everything in our body, even behaviors and cognition. Mm-hmm. So. While uh, we definitely do recommend a whole foods diet approach as much as possible, but, you know, we are very aware of how difficult it is to have a picky eating child. (laughs) Um, And in these cases, supplementation is necessary. And uh, for instance, a zinc deficiency, which we didn't really get into zinc today, but a zinc deficiency has been shown to play a major role in picky eating due to alterations in taste and smell. So... Many times, you know, once you're able to balance the nutrients, um, their eating habits will improve. So um, we can have an episode in that in the future, just transitioning a picky eating child. (laughs) Yeah. Because that that would be a really important topic to address. Um, But yeah. Yeah. And when addressing nutrient deficiencies, um, it's always important to work with a knowledgeable practitioner who can evaluate your child's current diet and make recommendations based on that. Yes, I agree. I agree. All right. So now we would love to hear from you. What have you found to be extremely effective in relieving behavioral and ADHD symptoms with your child? So leave us some comments or head over to the Instagram and find us at Wellness Speaks Podcast. We will have links to the articles and research that we mentioned in our show notes. Um, Also, if you feel so inclined, go rate and review our podcast, which will help us be found more easily and let this information be heard. So join us Friday for another mini-sode. And until then, have a great week.